0: Welcome back to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I'm your host, Joy Neumeier. Today we'll be talking to Joshua Rubinstein about his book, The Last Days of Stalin, published by Yale University Press. The Last Days of Stalin recounts the months before and after Stalin's death, with a focus on the socio political vacuum that it opened up, as well as the missed opportunity for improved relations with the United States. Joshua Rubinstein, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Good to speak with you. Yes, good to speak with you.
0: Before we begin, please tell us a few words about yourself and your background.
1: Yes. Well, I was born in New Britain, Connecticut, and I attended Columbia at a very quiet time, 1967 to 1971. So it was a very tumultuous time in New York during the Vietnam War. And I was quite involved as a student activist. Uh, But I made a point of studying a foreign language at university level, and I studied Russian. I had no idea where it would take me. I just wanted to supplement the Studying, I'd done a French and of Hebrew with another language with a different alphabet. I was going to study Chinese, but that scared me. So I just to, I decided to study Russian because at least it had a different alphabet. And I always liked reading Russian literature. After Columbia, I lived in Israel for a year. I needed a break after four very intense years at Columbia and being in New York City. Uh, and I decided not to go to graduate school, not to go to law school or business school like all my buddies at Columbia. Uh, I decided I wanted to be a writer. So I came back to Boston where I'd never really lived and uh, taught part-time at a Sunday school and had other odd jobs and spent a lot of time, I think, learning how to write. I tried to write stories and even a novel. And after a year or two, I began writing book reviews on Russian history for different publications. And this led to my first book, A History of the Soviet Dissident Movement, which came out in 1980. At that time, very few people were writing, very few scholars were writing about the Soviet human rights movement. So that was the first history of the movement. And um, in the meantime, I joined Amnesty International as a volunteer. It was hired to be an organizer back in the fall of 1975. And I stayed 37 years at Amnesty. I ended up being for many years the Northeast Regional Director. At the same time, I continued to explore different topics in Soviet history. My main book is a biography of the controversial Soviet Jewish writer Ilya Ehrenberg that came out in 1996. That called, that's called Tangled Loyalties. And since that time, I've written and edited six other books uh, on the human rights movement, on the fate of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, uh, a concise biography of Leon Trotsky for the Jewish Live series of Yale Press, and now, of course, The Last Days of Stalin, which is my most recent book.
0: How did you come to write about the death of Stalin? What attracted you to this story?
1: Well, um, the editors at Yale Press were familiar with my work about the Stalin period, the fate of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, my book on Trotsky. Um, and so they came to me with the proposal um, four or five years ago. And to be candid, I turned them down. I told them I didn't think the subject deserved the full book, that Stalin got sick and died, and all the other myths around it is pure elaboration and were not true. But they asked me to consider what kind of book could be useful to explore the events surrounding the death of Stalin. So I consulted with friends at Harvard and other universities. And figured out that if I couched the story by beginning with the narrative arc would be the 19th Party Congress in October 1952 through the very uh, contentious events of 52 and 53, including the election of Dwight Eisenhower and then John Foster Dulles to be Secretary of State and Churchill's back in Downing Street as the prime minister, frail and elderly, but still the prime minister, and then Stalin dies in March, that that would be a way to couch the story, to frame the story, and also to explore the events surrounding his death, how his death was treated in the Soviet press and in the Western press, in the American press, in the British press, in the French press, because we actually learn a lot from that. You get a sense of how little was really understood about the regime and how little was understood about the scale of repression. And of course, Stalin died just eight years after the war, so there was a modicum of respect for him as a wartime leader, which I found in the press accounts uh, led to some distortions of the historical record, because they were, they were lauding him as a historical leader, as the leader of the military and the Soviet regime, but at the same time, kind of ignoring his missteps, his mistakes and the, the terrible repercussions of the pact in August 1939. And much of that was ignored in the in some of the obituaries in the mainstream press. So I thought that was very interesting,
0: too, and important to explore uh, for a book like this. So before we get a bit deeper into the contents of the book itself, I wanted to briefly ask you, as I'm sure you know, there is a recent film called The Death of Stalin, which was directed by Armando Iannucci, who's best known for political satires like In the Loop and Veep. And the film really uses his death as the basis for slapstick. So first, I wanted to ask if you've seen the film, and if so, what did you think of it? And second of all, how has the story of Stalin's death typically been narrated, both in scholarship and in popular culture? And how did you want to tell the story? What did you think was missing?
1: Well, I appreciate you referring to the the Iannucci movie. I have not seen it, it has not opened in the United States though I've seen it's gotten very enthusiastic, positive reviews in the British press. I'm a big fan of Iannucci. I've only seen a couple of episodes of V, but I adore In the Loop. I thought it was an absolutely great, over-the-top movie. Um, So I'm very eager to watch this new movie about Stalin's death. It would be an astonishing way to approach his death, which is one of the most important events of the 20th century. Um, So to treat people like Beria, and uh, Khrushchev and Malenkov and Molotov and Kaganovich as slapstick figures is a little mind-boggling because these were very ruthless people and in some cases had plenty of blood on their hands, in particular Berry and Kaganovich, but Khrushchev too. Um, So to treat them as buffoons is on the one hand very unsettling and unnerving, but maybe it does justice to the macabre events and the macabre dimensions to the death of Stalin, um, the way he was, in some might think, left to die, the way the regime, the leaders found him and waited two days before telling the population how sick he was, that he had collapsed. Um, That's unheard. That would be unheard of today, presumably. But in a regime like the Stalin regime, anything was possible. Uh, We'd like to say the Soviet Union was the land of unlimited impossibilities, and some of that applies to the death of Stalin. So for Ianucci, to, you know, the movie is based on a graphic French novel. So I've read the novel in translation. I read French, but I've, I was only able to find the English translation, which is almost no bearing on reality, other than the fact that Stalin dies and that in the end Khrushchev picks up the pieces. Nothing has to do with reality, not in the graphic novel, and I'm sure that's true for the movie as well. But it's good to see attention being paid to Stalin's death nonetheless.
0: So to turn to the historical events that actually happened, I'm hoping you could begin by narrating for us what the last several days of Stalin's life were like, beginning from the hours leading up to his stroke in the beginning of March, 1953.
1: Yes. Well, keep in mind, we know that Stalin had been suffering from severe hypertension, high blood pressure and there was no adequate medical treatment for that in the West or in the Soviet Union at that time. All people could say was rest and take care of yourself, don't smoke, don't drink, stay away from hot tubs and steam baths, which elevates high high blood pressure. But other than that, there was no medication. So he was not being properly treated. And he refused the advice of his doctors even to consider retirement which apparently one of his doctors had suggested, Vinokradov. So on the night of um, Saturday night, February 28th, was a typical weekend night uh, in the Kremlin. Stalin was entertaining a small group of his comrades, his comrades in arms, they like to call themselves, in the Kremlin watching a movie. Uh, Stalin was a very lonely man. He was a widower. He had never remarried after the suicide of his second wife in 1932. He had no friends. He was estranged from his children, his grandchildren. He never saw them, rarely saw them. So he invited Khrushchev and Beria and Malenkov and Kaganovich that they should watch a movie with him, which is typical entertainment. And then he would say, you know, let's go have dinner at the dacha 10 miles away. And, of course, that's an invitation they could not refuse. So it was a small group, you know, repaired to the dacha, drank and ate till three or four in the morning, and then they went home. And Khrushchev, in his memoirs, said that Stalin was in a very good mood. He was joking with them. There's conflicting reports about whether Stalin had been drinking that night, whether he was drunk. <clears throat> the main point is that on Sunday, typically, he would sleep till 12 noon, and then he would summon the guards by ringing a bell or hitting a buzzer, and they would bring him tea in the newspapers and some breakfast, and the day would commence but nothing happened. There was no sound from Stalin. There was no coughing, no shuffling of feet. They didn't know what had happened to him. But the rule at the dacha was that none of the guards could enter his private quarters, could go through that door unless they were summoned. This was a security measure. We also believe that Stalin slept in different rooms in order to confuse a would-be assassin. So he was quite paranoid. So there was not a peep out of Stalin as the afternoon wore on into the early evening. So the most reliable account we have is that around 10 at night, the guards asked an elderly housekeeper who had worked for Stalin for many years. They asked her to enter his private quarters, thinking that if he saw her and he was okay, he would not be overly alarmed. And she found him on the floor, soiled in his own urine, semi-conscious, She called the guards, she raised the alarm. Excuse me. They came in, they picked him up, they tried to comfort him, and then they began calling, calling Beria, calling Malenkov, trying to track down the other leaders and alert them something's wrong with Comrade Stalin. Apparently, Beria and uh, Malenkov, and perhaps Khrushchev, did not reach the dacha till almost two in the morning. According to the reports we have, Stalin was asleep and snoring. So Beria insisted there was nothing wrong with Stalin. He was just asleep, and he berated the guards for raising the alarm, and they left. Again, no doctors were summoned. So of course, at this point, there's the natural question that perhaps Beria and Mullenkoff and the others wanted nature to take its course, that by not calling the doctors, they were just letting Stalin Died calmly and peacefully as a result of whatever happened, probably a stroke or a heart attack. But the guards remained alarmed, and they began making more calls later that night in the morning. And finally, around 7 or 8 in the morning, the doctors were summoned. And they immediately understood that Stalin was paralyzed on one side, that he'd suffered a devastating stroke. And they tried to uh, do what they could for him, apply hot towels and keep the room quiet and remove his dentures so he wouldn't choke. Uh, They applied leeches to the back of his head and to the back of his ears. But there was really very little they could do. And they explained to the leadership that he was going to die. But the leaders said, look, do what you can to prolong him in life while we decide what's going to happen to the country. So this is already March 2nd. This is already Monday, and they do not make an announcement to the population, to the world at large, for another two days. During which time, meeting at the dacha, they quietly assign each other certain assignments, internal security, the border security, who will be chairman of the council of ministers, who will be head of the party, all these different important roles within the government and the party, in order to project a collective leadership and stability so to reduce the threat of tension and turmoil in the country. Because they expected that the announcement of Stalin's collapse, and people would understand that if they were to say Stalin is very ill, that would mean he's going to die. They wouldn't simply announce that he had pneumonia or he'd broken his foot or something for some other less serious condition. They would only make an announcement when they knew that he was going to die, both to get the the population prepared and to save themselves. Because if they thought he would recover, they would never make such an announcement. Now, keep in mind, Stalin uh, took sick on March 1st, just six or seven weeks after the announcement of the doctor's plot, which was this riveting, uh, scary moment in Soviet history when on January 13th, 1953, The Soviet press announced there had been a conspiracy uncovered to undermine the health, to murder Soviet leaders by doctors, mostly Jewish doctors, in cahoots, in collaboration, conspiring with Western imperialism and Zionist circles. They didn't say Israel, interestingly. They just referred to Zionist circles, Zionist conspiracy. And involving Solomon Mikhoels, the famous Yiddish theater director, who had died And we now know had been murdered five years earlier to the date. And his death had been treated as a tragedy. He had been lauded in the Soviet press. Now he's being exposed as a conspirator. So the regime had to make clear that Stalin had collapsed, that he he got sick. If he died, it would be a natural death. And all the doctors who signed the medical bulletin, none of them were Jewish. And I think that was a very important point to make. So the regime was assuring the population that Stalin would get serious, adequate medical treatment, and there is nothing to suspect that there is any connection to the doctor's plot and his collapse. So all these were the things I felt was important to explore, these little subtleties. What was also interesting is that we know now for sure that Stalin collapsed at his dacha. But when they made the announcement of his illness, they said he got sick, in his Kremlin apartment, which was a lie. But to me, it reinforced this myth that Stalin was always working. You know, there was even a a light kept on in his office in the Kremlin, which you could see from outside the Kremlin on the street. Is it projecting the the myth that Stalin's always here? He's always at his desk. He's always looking out for you, the Soviet people. And this was, of course, a gross... uh, uh, grossly misleading uh, impression. Stalin was was away on vacation often. He was going to the South, to the Caucasus, and none of this was ever made public to the population.
0: As we now know, of course, Stalin's illness was indeed fatal, and he passed away after his stroke. But what do you think might have happened if Stalin had indeed carried on living for months or even years, or perhaps been kind of indefinitely rejuvenated? As I understand, as you note, there were rumors circulating at the time that he was looking into research about extending. Yes, the uh, let me just pick
1: up on that last point. Um, one of the defendants in the secret trial of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee in the spring and summer of 1952 was the famous scientist Lena Salomonovna Stern. And one of the r- rumors <coughs> as to why she was not executed was Stalin's uh, hope that if she got, were allowed back to her laboratory, she was a famous physiologist, she could get involved in, in uh, ways to extend human life. But we don't know if that's true. Um, Well, I think it was a very scary thing to imagine Stalin living longer. Uh, We don't know where the doctor's plot would have led. There's all kinds of rumors, and it's only rumors, that uh, the regime was planning to execute the imprisoned doctors publicly and then use that as a way to justify the mass deportation of Soviet Jews from the European cities of the Soviet Union, from Kiev and Kharkov and Leningrad and Moscow, where hundreds of thousands of Jews were living, survivors of the Holocaust. And um, frankly, this is something I discuss in the book, and we don't know what Stalin's ultimate intentions were for the doctor's plot, no one can say. Um, We have not found a single document in the archives reinforcing the idea that there were plans to deport Jews, that there was um, decrees for setting aside rolling stock or cattle cars, trains to do this, or that any serious documentation that concentration camps were being built to accommodate hundreds of thousands of Jews somewhere in Central Asia or Siberia or maybe Barabajan on the Chinese border. Um, So I treat this whole episode very cautiously uh, but no one can deny that something serious was afoot. But where it was leading, we simply don't know for sure.
0: Obviously, the illness and death of a leader while in office is a problem for any political system, and all the more so when the person had tremendous personal power and sway like Stalin. But what particular problems did his death pose for the Soviet system and for the international balance of power?
1: Well, I think for the Soviet system, it was a complete and utter shock everything in the Soviet Union relied and revolved around uh, Joseph Stalin. There were no obvious successors. Um, We knew there'd be a struggle for power. They knew there'd be a struggle for power. But initially they tried to project an image of collective leadership in order to reassure the population. Now, Stalin died March 5th. His body was immediately prepared for lying in state. And on March 6th in the afternoon, um, They uh, delivered his body to the House of Unions, the Hall of Columns in the House of Unions, one of the most august interior spaces in the Soviet capital, where Lenin's funeral was held, where the trial of Gary Powers was held, the pilot of the U-2 plane that was shot down in the early 60s. It's a very famous location in Moscow. Um, In War and Peace, there's an episode in War and Peace that takes place in the uh, Hall of Columns, for example. So everybody's familiar with it. And uh, so for three days, on March 6th, March 7th, and 8th, um, hundreds of thousands of Muscovites uh, walked through the streets of Moscow to view the body in the Hall of Columns. And we know now that at least a few, uh, well over 100 people were trampled to death, not because of um, there were riots, but because the regime was not competent in controlling the crowds. And so people were trampled to death. And there were also casualties in Leningrad and in Tbilisi in Georgia, Stalin's home region, home republic. So the regime was very afraid where all this could lead. But in fact, uh, aside from these tragic moments during the time he was held in state, there were no revolts. Crowds did not storm the labor camps the way crowds stormed the Bastille uh, in the French Revolution in 1789. The regime actually remained very stable. The population had been so cowed, so frightened, that the regime could rely on the dividends from that fear to sustain itself in power. And the same gray men, and they were all men, who had surrounded Stalin, were able to pick up the leadership and move forward. But under the surface, in his memoirs, Khrushchev said that he began to really conspire with the others about how to marginalize Beria. With Stalin's death, Beria took control not only of internal security, but of border security. So he had tremendous power. He controlled the communication system. He controlled the security for the Kremlin. So in order for Khrushchev to organize this conspiracy against Beria he had to act very quietly, very discreetly. And eventually they involved the military and they hated Beria for the way the military had been targeted during the purges. So they had no love loss for the internal security services for what we now call the KGB. At that time it was the NKVD. Um, So Khrushchev in the end took several months, but the end of June uh, during a a Presidium meeting Uh, They called in military officers and they took Barry into custody and removed him quietly from the Kremlin to a secret bunker that even Barry did not know about along the banks of the Moscow River. That was the end of June, beginning of July. He was not brought to trial till December. That was a, a, a secret trial. It was not publicized. And then he and six others were immediately executed. So my book begins happily, Stalin Dies, And it ends happily. Barry is executed, unlike any other book in Soviet history. Um, So the events of 1953, um, you know, were extremely traumatic and dramatic. And keep in mind, in August 53, the Soviet government detonated a hydrogen bomb device. So history moved on. And uh, all of a sudden, the, the Cold War is becoming... More acute. Each side now not only has atomic weapons, but hydrogen weapons. And so when Stalin died, Churchill insisted that Eisenhower try to meet with the new Soviet leaders. This is something I also explore in the book. And we know now, we believe, that the Soviet leaders were open to some kind of dialogue to reduce tension, uh, reduce the tensions in Eastern Europe, the tensions in Berlin. You know, it was their initiative that led to the armistice in Korea, they immediately signaled to the Chinese and the Koreans who had wanted to end the fighting. that now is the time to renew uh, negotiations uh, to end the fighting in Korea. And that led to the signing of the armistice in July, the very same armistice that governs the peninsula today. Is it a perfect arrangement? Of course not. We know there's tremendous tensions and fears about the conduct of North Korea. But nonetheless, there's been no active fighting since the spring and summer of 1953. And that's a great achievement. And the new Soviet leaders deserve some of the credit for that.
0: To return for a moment to March and April 1953, immediately after Stalin's death, what were the options that were discussed at the time in the State Department and among Eisenhower's staff? Um, What was on the table and what were maybe the roads not taken in terms of how to approach the Soviet Union after its leader had died?
1: Well, you know, based on the documents that I was able to see, uh, minutes of National Security Council meetings, uh, Eisenhower's memoirs, memoirs of people close to him in the State Department, even his press secretary, Eisenhower himself understood that Stalin's death um, created a, a very real opportunity to turn the page. He told that to his advisors. He said, look, we have new leaders I'm the first Republican president in 20 years. I've just been elected. I met Stalin in 45, in August 45, at the end of the war. He welcomed me to Moscow. I was on the mausoleum with him. I understood he was a terrible dictator. I had no illusions about him, but now he's gone and I'm the leader here. So they have new leaders, we have new leaders. But John Foster Dulles was not only a a determined anti-communist, which Eisenhower was too, but he really says he was very wary of having Western or American leaders negotiate with Soviet leaders. They felt that both Roosevelt at Yalta in January '45 and Truman in Potsdam in the summer of '45, at the end of the war had been taken advantage of, had been outmaneuvered by Soviet leaders. Um, and that was why the Soviet Union, the Red Army, had taken control of Eastern Europe. I think that's a very you know, mistaken way to view the history, but that was the mood, particularly in Republican circles. Keep in mind, McCarthy was at the height of his prestige, his influence. Eisenhower hated McCarthy, understood what a demagogue he was. He had to go very quiet. He had to be very discreet about how to handle McCarthy. He couldn't take him on head on. And Foster Dulles too was very afraid of McCarthy. He didn't want to be branded as insufficiently anti-communist. So this influenced uh, the maneuverability of the Eisenhower administration in the wake of Stalin's death. Now, in my book, I uh, have some extended discussion of Eisenhower's famous speech on April 16th, five, six weeks after Stalin's death, the chance for peace speech, which Eisenhower gave to the American Association of Newspaper Editors. And he said how deplorable this Cold War is and the arms race. And it's one of his two most important, most widely cited speeches of his eight years in office. He says, look, for every jet, we could build so many hospitals. For every aircraft carrier, uh, we could uh, have such new schools. We could have agricultural development, more food for people, more medical care. And this is a tragedy not just for the American people, but for the Soviet people, And so we need to reach a better accommodation with each other. So this was a very, um, he was certainly reaching a handout to the Soviet people. And he blamed Stalin for the division of Europe and the tensions in Europe. Two days later, Foster Dulles delivered a speech to the very same audience. And he took a more belligerent approach and made clear that no one could challenge the United States. And uh, what's astonishing is a week later, Pravda carried a complete translation of Eisenhower's speech. They didn't edit it, they didn't mock it, they didn't ridicule it. They included the passages where he was critical of Stalin and the Soviet regime. And they were saying, okay, they're telling the Soviet public, you decide. What is Eisenhower offering us? And uh, Molotov, the foreign minister, the longtime foreign minister, offered a commentary to Stalin to Eisenhower's speech, very respectful but you know, critical where they differed, but they accepted. So obviously they were looking for a dialogue. American officials in Moscow at the embassy and in Washington were flummoxed, were astonished, were confused by this Kremlin move. The idea that they would republish Eisenhower's speech in the weeks after Stalin's death was an obvious signal that they were open to some kind of dialogue. And a few days later, Ilya Ehrenberg, about whom I've written, had an editorial on, uh, I guess, the May Day publication saying the time had come for dialogue. And all these signals were set aside, I believe, by the Americans. Years later, the American ambassador, uh, Charles Bowen, a very experienced diplomat, and other State Department officials admitted ruefully that they regretted not pressing Eisenhower to be more assertive in reaching out to the new Soviet leaders, to Malenkov, to Molotov, to Khrushchev. In 1954, a year later, uh, Eisenhower told his press secretary, James Haggerty, that one reason they didn't seek to negotiate was they didn't know who the new Soviet leader would be. They didn't know who would succeed, who would really succeed Stalin. And they didn't want to extend a hand to either Molotov or malenkov certainly not the Beria, and elevate that person that was up to the soviet leaders to do to sort it out for themselves well that's something he said in 1954 we have nothing on the record that expressed that misgiving in 1953 my own interpretation is that eisenhower understood he had missed an opportunity and was kind of second-guessing himself and 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 uh floating an idea that it had not occurred to him in 53 in order to justify the fact that the U.S. did not reach out more fully to Soviet leaders.
0: You read right that the U.S., after the publication of Eisenhower's chance um, for peace speech in Pravda, failed to follow up with creative diplomacy. And I wanted to push you a bit farther on this point. What do you think could have been done um, if, you know, Eisenhower had reached out to Molenkov or to whoever at the time, and how might a different approach, whatever it could have been, have shaped the history of the Cold War?
1: Well, let's, let's play counter-history, because that's what this is. Let's say that after the chance for peace speech in mid-April, Eisenhower had instructed Ambassador Bolin in Moscow to arrange a summit A summit to take place in Stockholm or Helsinki or Geneva, a neutral site, that he and Foster Dulles and Bolin and other State Department officials and maybe Defense Department officials would meet these new Soviet leaders and figure out ways to defuse tensions over Korea, which they were already doing, and Berlin, and somehow disengage military forces uh, in the center of Germany. Now, there's even some speculation, and it is strictly speculation, that the Soviet leaders understood that the East German state, the, General, the German Democratic Republic, was an artificial state. Thousands of German, East German citizens were flooding into West Berlin. There was no wall. They were free to do it every day. And this was having a real destabilizing effect on East Germany. And these Germans wanted to impose stricter security measures And the Soviets responded, no, you can't do that. I mean, this is the arrangement we have. The city's divided into four sectors. We're not prepared to do that. That would be very threatening to the West. So there's some speculation that they might have been willing to see a reunited Germany demilitarized, because Stalin's fear and the fear of the new Soviet leaders was that West Germany, which was three times the size of East Germany, and much more powerful economically and potentially from a military point of view, they wanted to avoid West Germany becoming part of a Western military alliance, what we call NATO, and that they might have been willing to accept a genuinely neutral, demilitarized and united Germany at that moment. Now, whether that's possible or not, who can say eight years after the end of the war, would they've been willing to see a united Germany, even with guarantees of demilitarization, of neutrality, and the withdrawal of Soviet forces. Stalin had suggested in '52 to, uh, you know, even talk about uniting Germany again, but keeping Soviet forces in East Germany, which is, of course, a non-starter. And so the Western, Western governments in the U.S., dismissed uh, his proposal and refused to take him up on that. But maybe the new Soviet leaders had something else in mind. And if we had, could, if, if it would have been possible to see Germany united, not become part of NATO, not rearm, what would that have meant for the history of Europe? What would that have meant for lessening of tension? Uh, no Berlin Wall the withdrawal of American tanks from the center of Europe, the withdrawal of Soviet, of the Red Army from East Germany. Okay, they were repaired to to Czechoslovakia across the border. They had real security concerns. No one should deny that. They'd had this terrible two wars with Germany in World War I and most markedly World War II. Um, they had legitimate, substantial security concerns. But maybe a united and demilitarized Germany in the center of Europe, that would be a buffer between Western forces and Eastern forces, would have been acceptable to the Soviet Union, maybe acceptable to the West. Well, that would be a very different history of Europe, very different. But
0: that didn't happen. And uh, whether it could have happened, no one can say. Yeah, it's a pretty astounding prospect. In light of the uprisings that did happen in East Germany in June of 1953, do you think that the window between Stalin's death in March and the Soviet decision to quell the uprisings in East Germany in June? Do you think that that window was realistically long enough to recalibrate the relationship with the U.S. and with Western Europe, um, or or really was it was it kind of faded um, in light of how quickly things happened for tensions to increase?
1: Right. Well, that's a very legitimate question. That's a very legitimate question because. Even if they had said, let's have a summit, these things are not done spontaneously. Eisenhower doesn't just get on a plane and go to Stockholm and Molokov gets on a train and goes to Stockholm. That's not how it happens. There are many weeks or months of, of negotiations over the agenda, over what's likely to be accomplished. Certain agreements are made before a summit. So it doesn't only depend on the personal chemistry between the leaders because there are real interests involved here, very substantial interests. So the the, the window of opportunity was very narrow. And although the East German events, they've been superseded by the more dramatic events in Hungary in 56 and Czechoslovakia in 68 and Poland in 1980-81, actually were very traumatic. And the riots that took place were not only in East Berlin, but throughout Germany, hundreds of German cities. And it required... Um, many many Red Army troops uh, to, to suppress the riots, which were clearly anti-communist, anti-Soviet riots. Um, and then the West could not negotiate with Soviet leaders in the wake of both the riots and the suppression of the riots. So, yes, it was a very narrow window of opportunity. But what might have happened if at the end of April or beginning of May, an announcement was made, that there would be such a summit, maybe for July. That might have given people hope throughout Eastern Europe. And maybe that would have precluded the kind of emotions that erupted in East Germany for a variety of reasons. And maybe that would have been a signal to a very hardline East German communist leadership who were very stupid, very hardline, very short-sighted, that something was in the air and they better behave themselves. And they didn't. So, you know, we know now that in, um, in May and June, the Soviet leaders are making very clear to their satraps in Eastern Europe, including East Germany, that the hardline policy of Stalin were going to be reversed and that they should offer softer policies toward the population because they were afraid of riots and destabilizing events. And there were already events in Czechoslovakia and in Bulgaria on a very small scale, but still stirrings of discontent directed against the the Soviet Union, communism in general. And these were, of course, suppressed.
0: To bring us to the end of the book, you've already mentioned that the struggle for power after Stalin's death ultimately results in Beria's arrest and execution at the hands of Khrushchev, who, of course, becomes the new head of the Soviet state. I was hoping you could expand a little bit more on why Khrushchev ultimately triumphs not only over Beria, but also over Malenkov, who was certainly perceived to be the heir to the throne in the months after Stalin's death, at least among the Western powers.
1: Yes, well, according to other observers, the only two people who really had the energy and the wherewithal to succeed in a struggle for power were either Beria or Khrushchev. Berry was well known in the West. He had accompanied Stalin to the various uh, meetings in Tehran and and uh, in Yalta. Khrushchev was little known, and Khrushchev, and Eisenhower in his memoirs refers to Khrushchev as the little known Khrushchev. So they had no idea who Nikita Sergeyevich was and what his capacity was. But the other Soviet leaders uh, understood quickly that. Beria was a very capable, ruthless man, but Khrushchev was also very capable and uh, very sharp, even if he projected an image and in some ways was untutored, not that educated and unpolished. It was Khrushchev who took the initiative very quickly after Stalin's death to uh, alert Bulganin and Malenkov that they had to be afraid of Beria that they had to worry that Beria would turn on them. They had so much power and was so capable and so ruthless that they had to be wary of Beria. And this took several months for Khrushchev to do. And this is all, he describes it in many pages in his memoirs and um, Bill Taubman in his uh, very famous biography of Khrushchev goes into this in great detail. I only deal with it you know, in a few pages, that's all I could do. But basically, Khrushchev made clear to the other leaders and to the military that they had to work together to, to somehow pick the right moment to bring Barry into custody. What is very strange about the arrest of Beria is that when they finally announced to the population two weeks later that he was in custody that they had to accuse him of all the ridiculous crimes that Stalin had used against Zinoviev and Kamenev and Trotsky during the purge trials of the 1930s. They could not accuse Beria of his real crimes because the other leaders were complicit with Beria in the crimes he had carried out. The the, uh, targeting of Communist Party members in the 30s, the purges of Polish citizens in the Soviet Union, the deportations of the smaller nations in '44, like the Chechens and uh, the Ingush and others, they were all complicit in this. They were all complicit. They all had blood up to their elbows. So they couldn't accuse Barry of any of that. They had to say he was a Japanese spy or a British spy or American spy, that he wanted to restore capitalism, which has absolutely nothing to do with Barry's activities. Um, And then after he was executed, we had this bizarre episode where instructions were sent to subscribers of the great Soviet encyclopedia um, to cut out the page with Beria's entry and the very nice photograph of Beria to use a scissors or razor blade to cut out those pages and insert a new longer entry on the Bering Straits. Now, I've seen the encyclopedia, <coughs> excuse me, in the Harvard Library. And Harvard did not tear out Beria's pages. But they were immediately sending him down the memory hole. And all these statues of Beria throughout the country, and particularly in Georgia, had to be dismantled and melted down. There was a tremendous amount of metal and concrete um, had to be disposed of, all these tributes to Berry everywhere. So it was a big operation.
0: Yeah, it certainly seems fitting that he was consigned to oblivion. So to conclude, to shift away from Stalin and from Beria and from what happened next, could you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Well, you know, my book came out uh, in over a year ago, about a year and a half ago, and uh, I'm very pleased it's out in paperback now in English. And it's even coming out in eight languages, eight foreign languages. So I've been working with my publisher and had some contact with foreign editors, uh, but it's coming out in Azeri, in Estonian in Greek, in Hebrew, in Hungarian in Polish, Portuguese, and Ukrainian. So I've been spending some time. Uh, I don't, you know, I can't work in any of those languages. I read Hebrew, but, uh, I'm not going to translate it. Um, So I've had some contact with the publishers and uh, checking the covers. I've had to help make some adjustment to some of the covers. That's been fun. Um, And I'm writing a one. I wrote a chapter for the book, which I ended up not using on the Slansky trial, the famous anti-Semitic trial in Prague in November of 1952. The lead defendant was uh, Rudolf Slansky. Eleven of the 14 defendants were Jews. Um, this is a very traumatic trial. Uh, but in the end, I only referred to the trial very uh, superficially and quickly in the book. So I'm turning that chapter into a, a long essay for a, for a book that someone's compiling. So that's taking a lot of time. Um, and I've been doing book reviews, uh, recently, on cause we just marked the centenary of the Russian revolution. So there's a number of books out, including a second volume of Steve Kotkin's trilogy on, Uh, biography of Stalin. So I've reviewed both books now. Each is a thousand pages or more. It takes a lot of effort. Um, So I've been doing things like that on top of my day job where I work as a development officer at Harvard Law School. So I'm very active at the Davis Center for Russian Studies at Harvard. Um, I've done some seminars there recently. So I'm quite busy on, on all these fronts. Thank you.
0: Excellent. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate and we'll look forward to the Slansky essay. That's all the time we have for today. Josh Rubenstein, thank you so much for joining us. And to our listeners, thank you for listening to new books in Russian and Eurasian studies. Bye.